Welcome to Queer Spirituality, the podcast. I'm your host, Julian Crossenhill. This podcast is about an idea. It's the radical idea that queerness is a gift and that the divine celebrates it rather than merely accepts it. We'll explore the special role that queer people are meant to play in the coming spiritual awakening. Through the lives and stories of queer people, we'll explore the many ways of approaching the divine and how the sacred reveals itself in everyday actions. Most of all, this is a podcast about love. It's about the love of the universe. It's about love between people. And it's about the love a community can share with one another. Thank you for joining me. Hi, and welcome to today's episode. I'm your host, Julian Crossan-Hill, and today I have with me a very special guest. Nicholas Pearson has been immersed in the mineral kingdom for more than 20 years. He began teaching crystal workshops in high school, later studying mineral science at Stetson University while pursuing a degree in music. He worked for several years at the Gillespie Museum, home to the largest mineral collection in the Southern United States. In addition to his work, With the Mineral Kingdom, Nicholas is a flower essence therapist and Reiki practitioner and teacher. The author of several books, including Crystals for Karmic Healing, he lives in Orlando, Florida. Welcome to the show, Nicholas. Thank you so much for having me, Julia. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Um, So I guess to that bio, we could also currently add husband, right? I believe you were just married. Yes, um, very, very recently, in fact, just before the, the solstice. Wow. Awesome. So congratulations on that. It's always nice to see people getting, getting hitched. <laughs> so, um, so tell me a little bit about your spiritual journey. How did you sort of, how did your spiritual journey unfold? For you? you know, I grew up in a pretty non-religious household. My dad was raised really Catholic. So as a result, I wasn't raised much of anything. And um, it was a single parent, single child household for like the first six years of my life. And when other families did this church stuff on weekends, we would go to the local library. And um, that was kind of my, my holy place, my sacred space for most of my life. And although I didn't really understand what happened in church, I, I thought that somehow these two things must be on a parallel track anyway. And my dad was a man of science. So some weeks we would go and I'd read science books, obviously for kids, but um, it might be earth science. It might be um, biology. I, I was obsessed with um, ecology and, and marine biology because I, I lived so close to the water being you know, a resident of Southeast Florida. But then other weeks, it might be folklore and fairy tales and world mythology. And pretty early on, I started to notice that whether I was looking at the scientific route or something more we'll say spiritually inclined, I noticed that there are these kind of um, parallel languages that describe the same phenomena in the world around us. And that ultimately, whether we turn to mythology, religion, or science, 
all we're trying to do is find meaning, find our relationship to the world and, and to experience it more, more deeply, more, more humanly. And that's kind of what opened the door to spirituality for me. At the time I was a, a teen, I'd fallen into um, the occult and metaphysics and, you know, would very, very um, surreptitiously steal into the occult bookstore sections at my local Barnes and Nobles to, you know, buy whatever I could get my hands on. And there is an otherness in witchcraft and growing up without a language to describe myself as a queer person yet, I, I felt othered. And that felt like home to me. It certainly wasn't the only place where I felt at home, but it was the, the big one, the, the one that seemed to have structure and organization to it, but was still malleable enough to allow me to explore it myself. And over the ensuing years, I was um, you know, lucky enough to explore other areas. You know, I've, I've gotten to practice Japanese-style Buddhism and um, explore a, a number of other kind of religions and spiritualities, but the, the more magical experience has always felt at home to me as a queer person who really doesn't feel, we'll say, at home under the umbrella of patriarchy, a, a place where we explore the divine feminine, where we can explore maybe the divine androgyne also feels really, really home to me. So um, that's really where I've settled. And I consider my spirituality to be very malleable today. I do consider myself a practicing witch and occultist, but you know, I, I also study the Dharma and um, I, I really love the kind of Western esoteric tradition as a whole and how it kind of reaches into so many other areas. I can feel very at home meditating in a cathedral as I can in a stone circle. So um, I think for me, it's that intersection between the material and the mystical, that liminal space that is inherently queer um, that draws me to it. And you can find that in, in any religion, any path. It doesn't just have to be the, the kind of witchy flavored spirituality. A lot of parallels with my own journey. And I think I, I from talking to other queer spiritual people, I think it's very common. Like I remember fifth grade, I checked out all the books I could on UFOs and Bigfoot and mythology and folklore. I was just really obsessed with that. And then I played D&D &D in middle school. And then when I got into high school, that otherness really started to surface. And that led me into witchcraft in the occult. And I was also very much like in the goth new wave punk scene. So really trying to set myself apart from the mainstream kids. And I think it was a lot of it was sort of response to feeling that otherness of, of my blossoming queerness, if you will. And then, you know, in, in college, I went to art school and that was really, we were sort of definitely the others on a campus that had a large engineering department, a large business school. So it was really interesting. And of course, art schools where I finally sort of had the safe space to come out and had a lot more exposure to other queer people and different approaches to being queer. I think that's really interesting how so many people's paths kind of have those parallel themes of folklore as an interest early and eventually finding Western esoteric paths like witchcraft and occult and Kabbalah and all of these things. So really interesting. So tell me a little bit, you mentioned liminal space was inherently a queer space. And so one of the things I like to ask is, is what does queer spirituality mean to you? And I, I'd love if you could kind of explore that a little more. 
I think the the growing trend to reclaim words like queer um, implies that it is othered. You know, queer is weird. It is strange. It is against the grain. To be queer is inherently subversive. So queer spirituality means that to, to some degree or another, consciously or unconsciously, we are disrupting the status quo. We have to embrace the, the weirdness that is within and without. Um, I mean, look, look at nature. Nature does some really strange stuff. And if we practice a, a, a nature-based path, like many people describe witchcraft and Wicca and neo-paganism, then we can't just practice the bits that fall into the, the nice little um, black and white boxes that most people want to when they claim that it's um, a reconstruction of a fertility cult. I mean, that's all well and good if that's meaningful to you. It's not meaningful to me, though. Nature is strange. Um, I just, just walking through my garden, I find things that don't follow the rules, flowers that bloom the wrong way or have the wrong number of petals and tendrils that, you know, grow in places they oughtn't. And um, I think queer spirituality is finding those parts of us that we need to celebrate as being perfect the way they are, even if they aren't in those neat little black and white boxes. So for me, queer spirituality is really empowering. It's really about giving yourself permission to just be the way you are. And I think a, a, an inherent part of queerness is trying to let go of the need for the labels that society foists upon us. Um, you know, for most of my life, I identified as gay. And, and lately, I'm kind of letting that dissolve into the, the bigger umbrella of queerness because I don't think a sing, single label is good for anyone because we're all so multidimensional. And when we try to put ourselves into these narrow little boxes, it restricts so much of what we can do and be and say. And, um, you know, I think, I think part of exploring the mysteries, because I mean, the point of spirituality is the transformative nature of mystery. It's touching the ineffable, the things we cannot put into words. And if I'm constantly trying to adhere to, um, you know, a checklist that I can cross off or um, understand things according to, to binaries or other classification systems, then I, I'm not touching mystery at all. There's no space for wonder. There's no space for awe. And it is in that thriving weirdness in those liminal spaces that we have those very transformative experiences. So I think the, the root of queer spirituality is that weirdness and how weirdness transforms us. And it is a beautiful thing and it is a very subversive thing. I, I love that idea of, well, I love all of what you said there. You know, I do human design and, and human design is so much about celebrating what makes us unique and different. And looking at a lot of things that we would normally think of as defects as actually being gifts that we've been given, which is really a beautiful sort of way to look at it. You mentioned that queerness was sub subversive, and I love that phrase. The labels thing, I think, is really important because I'm quite a bit older. And when I came out and was in college, we only had, we had a gay, lesbian, bisexual student union. Like there wasn't, we weren't really recognizing trans at the time. There wasn't an idea of being non-binary or being asexual. You had to sort of sort yourself into one of those three labels. And it felt very limiting for a lot of people. So I feel like we've done a much better job of embracing a wider spectrum of experience with queerness today. And I, I think that's very encouraging. I love the subversive idea. And I want to kind of ask you, you know, a lot of us are married. A lot of us are sort of doing these mainstream things. 
and there's some some queer people who are writing and, and, and speaking about queer theory who sort of feel like we're being absorbed into the mainstream a little bit, that we're making queerness more normal. And that this idea of, you know, for so long, one of the things that the mainstream conservative people had a problem about queerness was that we were promiscuous and we were all these things and we're sort of settling into these monogamous marriage relationships. And some people feel like that's limiting us. I don't personally feel that way, but I'm interested in, in your take on that. Um, you know, I'm, I'm in kind of two minds about it. One, I definitely, I, I see where the, the threat can be if we get absorbed into mainstream culture, if we kind of domesticate queerness um, to make it more palatable to those around us. But, you know, on the flip side of that, sometimes we have to play by certain rules to have protections that those institutions offer us. Um, being, being recently married and being of a younger generation, you know, the discussion about marriage is a very pragmatic one because especially with the way things are going in this country and in the world at large, I'm, I'm not so sure that not being married is safe for my partner and I if, if certain decisions continue to be made by the Supreme Court and, and other powers. So, um, you know, there's a certain kind of pragmatism that goes along with that. But I also think that by taking up space in those institutions as queer people, we are inherently disrupting them. Like, it's not so much that we are domesticating our queerness to placate the people around us and make them feel comfortable with our gayness, but like being there and being queer and making that work for us is subversive. No matter how tame it looks from the outside, the fact that in, in my non-heteronormative relationship here, having this legal document that certifies us means that it, it, makes room for us. And it also makes room for people who don't necessarily want the same things as us, who don't have the same goals, who don't want to play by the same rules. I think that there's room for everybody under our umbrella. And that's part of where um, the idea of celebrating things just as they are comes through. Um, one, of my, one of my big takeaways from my work with the Mineral Kingdom is this idea of being perfectly imperfect because you know, we define a crystal as a, a normally solid substance with a regular composition and a heterogeneous and symmetrical recurring composition. And it, it's got to be this really rigid and regular thing, but nature doesn't follow those rules, like I mentioned before. Um, and so there are always going to be these defects, these deviations, these little aberrations. And that's what gives us, you know, for example, emeralds or amethyst or rubies, because without defects, all of those would be colorless minerals, and we wouldn't know these beautiful colored gemstones. So it's the idea that just as we are is, is perfect. Whatever imperfections, whatever kind of shortcomings we might see, you know, whatever imposter syndrome we might be dealing with um, for feeling like we've, we've tamed our queerness or like we're masquerading as something that we aren't. Um, I think just taking up space as we are and, and claiming that space as our own is a very powerful and subversive act. So um, more power to the people who want to be bigger disruptors. Um, that's not where I have my energy to devote. That's that's not my lifestyle. That is not um, my, my arc, at least not right now. I mean, you never know, things change, we evolve. Um, 
and I will hold space and support those people. Um, I'll also hold space for those people who don't have the, the safety to come out at all and can only take up space in their inner worlds because that is also valid. So um, this idea of a spectrum, I mean, it's there on our flag, right? Um, is a really important thing. And we occupy all parts of the spectrum and we also occupy the in-between because Unlike, unlike the pride flag, things are not, you know, perfectly delineated solid bars of color. We, we have this lovely gradient where things kind of flow into one another. And again, it comes into this idea that we don't neatly fit into one perfect category at a time. So I think, I think it's a big conversation. I'm certainly not the expert here. Um, I can only kind of describe it from my perspective as a, a young queer person recently married. Um, and, um, that's just kind of where I am right now and how I've made peace with it. Yeah. I, I love what you said about just being queer and, and, and being married like that alone was subversive because I definitely think the whole process of getting queer marriage legalized really was subversive in that it sort of pulled the, pulled the veil off of the masquerade that, that religion and, and government functions were separate here because there was there was this strong religious argument of why gay people couldn't be married. And it had really no validity on the actual legal protections. And so it was very clear that a certain religious group was trying to carve out a series of special rights for themselves enshrined in government. So I think like it really sort of revealed in a lot of ways that that was the case. And I think it just that alone was a very subversive act and, and sort of shed a lot of light on where that sort of line between church and state was getting a little blurred. And of course, now with, with the conservative Supreme Court that we have and some of the things that have happened, that line's getting blurred even more, which is unfortunate. So hopefully uh, we can continue to be very subversive and, and, and call attention to that. I really love the way you described crystals and, and what they represent. And earlier you said you were really, you said this wonderful piece about the intersection between folklore and science and spirituality and how we're all just sort of trying to take meaning from it. And we've seen a lot of places where science kind of mirrors spirituality and vice versa, like um, in sort of new consciousness pulling heavily from ideas from quantum physics as well. I'd love to understand a little more about you know, obviously you've been very drawn to crystals for a lot of reasons, but tell me a little bit about the work that you do with crystals, because it sounds, obviously you have a great deal of scientific knowledge and understanding about crystals, but I'd love to understand how you sort of have married those two. Yeah, thank you. So um, it's no secret that I really like rocks. I have liked them for a really long time. I was that little kid who picked up stones from, you know, the sidewalk, the beach, uh, family vacations to the mountains, um, anywhere I could. If if a stone spoke to me, it ended up in my pocket or my backpack. And, you know, I had secret stashes of them, which, you know, of course got purged many times over the years. But my grandfather, when I was eight years old, more or less, um, observed this behavior and gave me my first piece of quartz. And suddenly this kind of inert part of the environment got transfigured into something luminous, something with these rigid angles, something that could um, transform light as light moved through it. And I was just transfixed. And so every chance I could to add a new tumbled stone or raw mineral to my collection, I would. And as I was spending all those times in the libraries or visiting bookstores, 
I found this really kind of unique place where I could bring my love of science and my love of folklore and mythology and spirituality together. And that was under the umbrella of crystal healing because up until a certain point in the kind of rebirth of the modern crystal healing movement, you really just had the kind of hands-on therapeutic books where people were using their, their own primary experience to write them, or they were looking at folklore. And sometimes they blended the two together. And so I really appreciated being able to do that and draw my, my own connections. But um, it was by studying the science of it that I got really fascinated because I noticed that people who had no idea what was going on with the inner workings of rocks and minerals would talk about minerals rich in iron with similar language or describe um, uh, minerals formed by tertiary or metamorphic processes as kind of working on the same level of our existence or things that were, you know, um, hexagonal crystal structures as kind of working in similar ways on our personalities, even though they didn't know the science themselves. So I kind of did this like meta analysis of things over time and, and created my own like super patterns from that. And that kind of formed a lot of the basis for the work that I do today. So, um, you know, I was lucky enough, I got to study mineral science. I worked firsthand in the, the science field in, in an earth science museum as the preparator of one of the largest collections. At one time, it was the largest privately owned collection in the U.S. And then kind of, you know, as other collections grew, it, it got relegated to the southeastern U.S. Um, and that was this incredible experience. Um, the director at the time would let me check out minerals like they were books in the library, as long as they came back in the same condition. Um, then the weekend was over. That was like, you know, the big if. Um, and um, I had access to the research library, which was modest, but um, really good size for an 18 year old Nicholas to get his hands on. Um, and that fueled my curiosity. So um, all of that, of course, has been um, tested by firsthand experience. I, I never just read something in a book and call it a day. Um, even when it comes to science today, you know, a lot of, a lot of geological kind of Things are not as set in stone, no pun intended, as we like to think. Um, I, I only recently discovered that one of my favorite mineral species has had its um, chemical composition redefined in the last three years, it's something that we've known about for 240 years. And wow. it, it just got its chemical formula changed because of constant analysis and constant updates. So um, it, it reminds me that everything in the world is really fluid, even the things that feel really solid and inert. And it is about our relationship with them. And, you know, rock is probably the very first thing we had uh, a lasting, ongoing relationship with. Uh, it formed one of our first tools, some of our earliest ornaments, some of the most long-lived pigments we've ever used. We use them in ornamentation and architecture. We use them in science and industry and technology. We even eat rocks, um, you know, whether it's the case of um, food additives and colors and preservatives or, you know, salt is an abundant mineral. So um, it is everywhere all around us. And even in our modern day spaces, you know, I look around my office, if you subtracted all the mineral specimens from the shelves, I would still be just enveloped by things that come from the mineral kingdom, the cement that makes up the bricks in this wall, the pigments in the paint, the copper wires that supply electricity are derived from mineral ores, the glass that's in the windows, like all of it comes from mineral resources. We are never not connected to the geosphere and to the lithosphere in particular, the, the solid rock portion of the earth. And, you know, this idea that we as humans 
um, kind of live outside of nature is a very strange one. We don't consider a beaver's dam to be outside of nature or a beehive to be outside of nature, and yet our skyscrapers are, and our you know luxury apartments and our our, our modest bungalows are outside of nature, and it's it's no different. Um, our resources might be refined a little bit more. There might be a few. Uh, extra steps in getting it from the earth to us, but we have this really deep, intimate relationship to stone. We've just sanitized it over, especially the last hundred years. So I think a big part of what I do is reminding people that we've got to get back into relationship with that. And it's recognizing the support that the mineral kingdom has for us in every part of our lives, uh, whether it's a fancy beautiful specimen of quartz or emerald or calcite, or whether it's the humble stone beneath your feet as you walk through your garden, like it's, it's all there and it's all resonating with that same kind of crystalline force. And that's where the magic is for me. That's amazing. So, so many things there in, in what you just said, and this whole part about being separated from nature and, and not really connecting to the materials that are around us. I, I've been a vegetarian on and off throughout my life. And for the last year, I've primarily been a, a whole foods plant-based diet. And it's really interesting how disconnected we are from where our food comes from. Even it's still part of nature. It's still coming from the same places, but you know, we put it in a plastic package and we're no longer really connected to it. We no longer really think about this used to be a living thing. Um, it's just a piece of meat in, in a market and this whole thing with, with the rock and the, and the things that we build. And I think it's really beautiful the way you talked about the different grades of the specimens, the, you know, from a beautiful quartz to the, to the rock you walk on in a garden. Um, there's a, a rock vendor here in, in Ohio that I go occasionally to their open houses and they sell a lot of rock, rough stones. And for the first time ever, I saw tiger's eye that wasn't all polished at it. And it was just a really odd experience for me because it was still really beautiful, but it was such a different experience of a tiger's eye. Cause I'm familiar with the polished specimens that have been, you know, buffed and polished and, and made really luminous. Whereas this was, you know, just tiger eye directly dug out of the earth. So it was really an interesting experience. And I love what you, what you said about the way people, we're sort of responding to energy or intuition or whatever, and finding that the physical groups of crystals that have share similar physical properties were given similar energetic properties by people over, over time and in folklore and, and different things. That's really interesting to me. You mentioned crystal healing as, as a modality for using crystals. I'm really interested in how do you use crystals besides healing? I think the simplest thing we can do, it, it comes back to this concept of relationship it's being conscientious and intentional, whether we are, you know, putting something on as jewelry, it's that pause before we just wear this ornament. It's setting maybe an intention. And sometimes that intention isn't saying, this is what I want you to do for me. It's holding space for where we're going to go in this day together. So um, I'm wearing Priscelli Bluestone, which is found in the um, Priscelli Hills in Wales. It is used for a lot of famous stone monuments, not least of all the kind of inner ring of Stonehenge. Um, and so it's this really kind of dynamic and very ancient rock. And um, this is a stone that I wear in my own way to be very dynamic and present the way this has weathered the eons and stood the test of time and held space very famously, very dramatically. 
Um, maybe I'm not seeking to be so dramatic um, in my space holding, but I think that's part of queerness too. We you know a flourish for drama. Yeah. Um, um, and you know, I I don't necessarily put this on to go. Okay, here's the checklist of what I want to accomplish today. Um, here's what I want you to do for me. But it's that pause of going, wow. Think of the story this stone tells. I wonder what our story can tell today. And if I reflect on the personal meaning that I have for this personal piece, and not just kind of the big, you know, archetype of Priscilla Bluestone uh, in all caps, but like, what does this stone have to say about our journey together? Where have we been so far? Where are we headed next? Um, just that that little kind of um, open endedness that makes space for relationship. That's a really beautiful thing we do, whether we're you know, tucking a stone in our pocket, whether we're creating a grid with many crystals, um, you know, pausing for five minutes with every, every crystal going into a grid could take you all day if you have 200 crystals going into a big fancy grid. So maybe, maybe it's not that elaborate of a process every single time, but it's, it's that space, it's that pause, that liminal zone where magic and mystery and queerness all lie. Um, that's where relationship is. And, you know, kind of looking at this intersection here between that kind of relationship and queerness, you know, we have thrived and survived as queer people because of relationship. No one does it alone. We are a spectrum. We are a community. We are in relationship to one another, um, sometimes more effectively, sometimes more cooperatively, um, sometimes more productively than at other times. And it's the same with our magical tools, whether we are crystal healers or herbalists um, or, you know, color mages, whatever our practice is going to be, it's about that dynamic relationship. And it can't be a one-sided thing. It can't be mandating. All right, Carnelian, I want you to give me energy. That is your only function today. No, it's it's really holding space for what we're going to create together. And we can kind of use the model of how queer people have, have supported one another in community that also we can translate to our work with anything else. It's it's that kind of mutual support, mutual aid um, that that brings the magic to life. So, you know, meditation is great. Quiet reflection is great. Wearing them as jewelry, as long as we have that intentional pause, is also great. Um, otherwise, if we skip the steps of intentionality of building relationship, they are beautiful objects. Um, because I believe in a science behind this, it's not all kind of mystical, animistic stuff. Um, that's a big part of it. But I, I also believe that because of the nature and the makeup of rocks and minerals, that there's something going on in the electromagnetic spectrum. Yes, something is going to happen in the background. But we know that consciousness changes the world around us, the observer affects the observed. So if we can add that conscientious and intentional bit to it, we're going to augment what we get out of that relationship so much more. I, I love everything you said there about the intentionality of it, because in my own personal work, I've sort of taken that approach to with my relationship with my higher powers, you know, God, goddess, all whatever spirit source, whatever you want to call it. Because I think sometimes people, particularly in um, esoteric paths like witchcraft and, and ceremonial magic, it becomes sort of one-sided, you know, the, the gods are sort of seen as this cosmic cash machine. Mm -hmm. um, and I recently took a workshop on bhakti yoga, which is the yoga of devotion, where it's all about singing songs to the deities, cooking food and offering it to the deities. It's all about this practice of devotion to them. And it was really a really important mindset shift for me, I think, to sort of experience that. You mentioned consciousness and, and this, this quantum physics idea of the observer affecting the observed. There's a lot of people, um, a lot of scientists now saying that the entire universe is conscious and that there's consciousness in everything around us. And so I'm, I'm curious if you feel 
that particularly in your work with crystals is there consciousness in our in our crystals oh absolutely 100 no doubt um if we look at indigenous beliefs pretty much the world over about the the lithosphere about things made out of rock and mineral uh, we see this time and time again um beautiful stories about spirits and deities and ancestors who become ensouled within stones um the mineral realm as being its own kind of uh, ensouled being in a separate track from the, the rest of life and living things. And then in the modern kind of crystal world, it, you're hard pressed to find um, a book on crystal healing that doesn't acknowledge something more than just the electromagnetism involved. There, there are some out there that that kind of lean on that heavily to sound, not to woo-woo, to make their <laughs> Um, ripples into the mainstream. Uh, I'm, I'm certainly prone to doing that depending on my audience, but there is life. There is some sort of animating force in everything from the, the tiniest subatomic particle to the cosmos as a whole. And, and I believe that we are all kind of like cells in the greater body of the cosmos. And for me, that is, you know, kind of like the the, the metaphor we'll say of, of the hologram, wherein a, a single component contains the information of the whole, maybe to a lower resolution, maybe the image is not as crisp and clear if we break off a tiny corner of that image um, and shine the light through it, but it's still there. And so, you know, within me is encoded the same mysteries that are within the universe. So it kind of begs the question of why we need external tools and why we have to seek that kind of hierarchical devotional relationship with the divine if it's all within us. But I think that's part of the human condition. Part of what we're here to do is to forget and subsequently remember. And we do that through looking at the cues and the clues in the world around us. Again, whether we're looking at science or spirituality, we are seeking meaning in the world. And the meaning that we have seen projected onto the cosmos, onto nature, onto the human condition and the folkloric records, I think are just clues as to what's happening in the inner realms, in the very kind of deep and transcendent kind of cosmic levels of who we are. And in that sense, there really isn't a we. It's, yeah. there's, there's just one of us here. It's, it's just one being. We, we are the universe incarnate. It's that perfect as above, so below relationship, but we have to squeeze it through our psyche. This filter is finite. Um, I am limited in my purview because I'm human. I am mortal and I am fallible. I'm going to make mistakes and I'm going to do things wrong. And that's perfect because yeah. that's what I'm here to do. And I'm here to support others who are doing the same thing. And it is through that very human condition of trying to experience the divine in me that I will see the divine in others, that I will see it in pebbles and flowers and leaves and seagulls and sea waves and rain puddles and carpet fibers, if I'm lucky. That's beautiful. I think there's definitely a lot of evolution that we're going through as a species of kind of increasing our awareness of that. And I'm wondering what your perspective is. What what role do queer people in particular play in that? This this might be kind of a, uh, I don't know if this is too on the nose or if it's too cliche, but um, to kind of paraphrase from one of the great shamans of our era, RuPaul, I think queer people are are like the 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 new 
shamans, the new high priestesses, the, the new mages of our era. Um, we've always occupied that role. But the beautiful thing about taking up space in ways that we never have is that visibility grows our platform. It makes room for others to join us. And I think true inclusivity means that, you know, we're going to we're going to have our own kind of queer only spaces, but we're also going to make space where we recognize that if we have our own spectrum, that spectrum extends and blends into and moves beyond the threshold of queer and not queer. Where, where does queerness really end? I think all of us here on earth have an inherent kind of queerness or strangeness or otherness to us because there's some place where we feel like we don't fit into the bigger picture. It's not in the same kind of queerness that we might be talking about, but I, I think as we make space for that and we make it visible and we allow that light to shine, it's going to consciously or unconsciously give permission for others to do the same in their own spaces, in their own ways. And my hope is that visibility, that inclusion, that love, radical self-love, like when the media is telling you that you are not worthy of love because you are not queer enough or straight enough or thin enough or beautiful enough or rich enough or successful enough. When you love yourself in spite of that, it is a really powerful and radical act. And if we can do that with really powerful lenses, really powerful voices telling us we aren't enough, then imagine what it's going to do for others. And that is a powerful thing. That is transformative to the core. And so doing that, I think is going to send ripples. That's going to change consciousness as a whole. We're not going to do it alone. Um, you know, women have a huge part, part to play in this women and, and femme presenting people will say, um, as a whole, um, they, they are going to lead the way in this. Um, I, I think that we're also going to see this coming from the, the shift in balance from, whiteness to non-whiteness as well. Like I recognize the privilege that I've got here and I'm happy to shut up and take a backseat to someone else in this category, but you know, here I am, I've got the spotlight on me, so let's use it. Um, um, I think these are, these are pockets that are going to expand. And the only way we're going to get through this is through that intersectionality because spectrums have gradients and they blend into one another and we're going to uplift one another. And eventually the spotlight's going to be on everybody. And my hope is that if we don't end up in a really dystopian future, or maybe after we get through that chapter, um, we're going to have this beautiful era where there is compassion and there is equity and there is, I mean, mostly peace. Humans are always going to be humans. Some things I think are going to be um, unequivocally part of what we do as life on earth, there's always going to be some kind of strife. Um, it, it'd get real boring if, if there wasn't. But um, I think we as queer people through loving ourselves and one another and building that kind of grassroots community that celebrates difference, imperfection, otherness, um, we're going to make space for everybody to have that same kind of radical love within. That's a beautiful vision of, of, of where we're heading because it definitely resonates for me with, with the, my work that I do as well. You mentioned a lot of the things that challenge queer people in sort of really finding this self-love and experiencing it fully and stepping into that. There's, you know, a lot of social pressures around things like body size, age, whether you're femme or masculine or all of these different things. There's so many things that want to pull us away from who we authentically are and make us feel less than. Since this is really your, your area of expertise, I'm wondering how can crystals help people sort of 
conquer those forces and really step into that self-love. Oh, I love this idea. So, um, you know, first and foremost, I want to mention Emerald. Emerald is something that is really a meaningful gemstone to me. There's a whole lot of folklore. Um, I, I could easily launch into a two hour lecture on emeralds. I'm going to try not to do that, but, um, in particular, I think one of my favorite and most radiant, but also subversive myths about emeralds is about the very famous one that fell from the sky. Um, you know, depending on the version of this myth that you use, um, none of them being, you know, actually scripturally based, but, um, we have this beautiful archangel being of light the eldest of the elder race who decides he doesn't want to bow down to the younger race. That's us. And so he gets booted. That's, that's one version of the story. Um, and when he is cast out from heaven, um, the, the final blow dealt by Archangel Michael with the flaming sword hits his crown and out of it falls this beautiful emerald, which tumbles to earth. It breaks. It is the same emerald that becomes the Holy grail and the emerald tablet. It's set into a ring that's worn by, um, King Solomon, it's owned by the Queen of Sheba. Like this, this emerald really gets around. We get the idea that it's both really tiny because it can be set into a ring and massive if like the entire cosmic directions for performing the alchemical process can be written on it. So obviously it's not a literal stone, but um, you know, one of the things that I take away from this myth is that we have this being of light who makes a big sacrifice, who, who leaves the celestial plane to incarnate, to descend from the plane of light into the densest existence possible. And the sacrifice that's made is, is seen in that emerald falling from the celestial realm into the material. And in gemstone therapy, a, a particular branch of, of crystal healing will say, one of the lessons that emerald brings is that all things in the material realm are a product of divine love. So the idea of descent from light into matter isn't about becoming inherently imperfect, but recognizing that you can't be imperfect if you're a product of divine love. In fact, the only thing you can be is worthy of divine love. So when we embrace the deeper message of what Emerald brings, then the only thing to do is to love yourself. Like there is nothing you are not except love. You, you can only be worthy of love. Um, no matter what you look like, no matter what your socioeconomic status is, no matter where you were born or what language you speak, um, how well you read or write, what your you know physical ability is, like none of it matters because you exist, therefore you are love. And if that isn't the message we need to be sending to queer people, uh, to women and femme presenting people, to people of color, to um, people of all creeds and nations and uh, everything, like seriously, if if we could all get that through our skulls, I think the world would be in a better place. So emerald is my go-to stone for that. It is the stone of radical self-love, not just self-love, but like changing us from the inside out. That's amazing. I, I'm going to have to go buy some emerald now. <laughs> so no, I but I but I love that vision of you know everyone is is worthy of divine love and that and that we're a product of divine love. That's really a, a powerfully resonant message. So we're, we're kind of reaching our time. So I want to give you an opportunity. What haven't we talked about today that you'd really like our, the listeners to hear about your work, about using crystals and queer spirituality, about any of it? Lately, you know, one of my big things has been about accessibility. And um, there are so many ongoing discussions about the ethics of consumption and capitalism 
And, you know, I think part of the subversiveness of queerness is, you know, breaking down the big isms, including capitalism. So, um, you know, if you want to go out and buy beautiful gemstones, of course, you have to like participate in that ism. Um, but I, I've really been turning a lot lately to humble stones. Like, what do we have in our backyard? What forms beneath our feet? What soils and sediments and sands and clays do we have nearby? And getting to know the geology of our, our kind of local space. Um, because, you know, a, a rock is defined as an aggregate of one or more minerals. And minerals are um, naturally occurring, inorganic crystals. Like that, that is the definition of, of a mineral. So therefore, rocks have crystals in them. So like work with them and you're going to get the same benefits. So if you've got granite or limestone or marble or sandstone, like you have tools at your disposal. Um, I'm, I'm going to be working a little bit more on kind of making space for that so we can get around the whole capitalist part of this and maybe um, find solutions to the topics of ethical consumption because, uh, you know, so many people I see in the kind of queer spaces are inherently trying to tackle some of those big problems that we've got. And, you know, as someone, um, you mentioned that you have a, a you know, plant-based life, you know, definitely I'm sure the ethics of consumption and the many ripples that causes have to be a big part of that discussion and conversation for you. And like, it exists everywhere. Um, as, as a published author, you know, I, part of the reason I chose my publisher is because they offset carbon and paper costs by reforestation um, endeavors. So, you know, there are ethical ripples, there are environmental ripples, there are social ripples to everything that we do. So, and I know that that's a big part of like the crystal world and it's one of the bigger critiques. I don't think it's necessarily a fair one because crystals represent the tiniest fraction of what all of mining and extraction does, but um, it doesn't mean that we're exempt just because we're small. Um, so um, I don't want people to feel like they are excluded because they don't have access to really great rocks and minerals. Like use what's in your backyard, use anthropogenic rocks, use brick and cement and, and you know, other things like that. And, um, you know, hopefully sometime in the near future, I'll get some more, some more how-to for that kind of stuff out there. But um, yeah, I just, I want to make sure that if we're talking about inclusivity, we don't exclude people who don't want to participate in the capitalism or in the, the mining extraction part of it, like, you know, dig up something from your local park or find something in your gravel driveway and listen to the voice inside that stone. And it is equally as valid, equally as ancient, equally as wise. In fact, maybe more so because it's been sitting there quietly without being um, <clears throat> subjected to the same kind of capitalist process as the beautiful tumbled stones that we also love and also have something to give us. I, I, I'm glad that you mentioned that because obviously, you know, crystal specimens can be very expensive and not everyone has access to, to them. So I'm really glad that you brought that up. And, you know, I personally look forward to, to that book when you write it <laughs> on using humble stones, because I think that's, that's a really beautiful point. Um, I, I sometimes teach uh, a, a place here in Dayton called the Temple of the Rebel Goddess, and they do a sliding scale. They're really all about inclusivity and, and increasing access. So I'm glad that you are also working in that way as well. Well, I want to I want to thank you for for taking time out of your day to be here and share your share your wisdom with with me and with the with the listeners. It's been really wonderful, and I think you've brought up some some really great points. 
So how can how can people find you, get in touch with you, buy your books, all of all of that good stuff? Thank you. Um, you can find me as at the luminous pearl in most places. It's Instagram, Facebook, TikTok. Um, my website is also theluminouspearl.com. You'll find links there to upcoming events. You can get signed books. Um, my books are also available anywhere books are sold. So you know whether that's the big places like um, Barnes and Noble and Amazon or your local independent uh, retailer, that's also a great option. And um, I do have a fairly recently released book, one that just came out this spring, that's not about crystals. It's called Flower Essences from the Witch's Garden, Plant Spirits and Magical Herbalism. Um, and the forward is actually written by uh, the person who connected us, Christopher Penzak. So um, that's my most recent release. So if you're looking for something involving the plant kingdom, I've got something out there for you as well. Well, I'm, I'm going to have to pick up that book because that sounds very interesting to me. Go check out Nicholas's stuff. He does lives on Instagram a lot. I've tuned into a few of them. It's some really great content. Check out his books. And again, Nicholas, thank you for being here and, and sharing with us. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Find my blog and past episodes of this podcast at www.queerspirituality.net. That's www.queerspirituality.net. Let me know what you think on Instagram at queer underscore spirituality or continue the discussion with like-minded people in the Queer Spirituality Facebook group. You can find it linked from the Queer Spirituality Facebook page or on the homepage of the Queer Spirituality website. Bright blessings.